Hello and welcome to the Wagtails podcast. My name is Megan Corcoran and I'm the director of the Wagtail Institute. In this podcast, I invite some pretty cool people to come and have a conversation with me on all things trauma, healing, education and well-being. I started this podcast as I realised some of the biggest learning that has happened in my career has been through meeting really great people that are working in the field and having great conversations with them. In this episode, I'm joined by Kit Wisdom from WISE, who is a physiotherapist studying somatic psychotherapy and is really committed to holistic approaches to healthcare that really honour the human experience. We cover so much more in this episode though, and we dive into topics of trauma, healing, pain, story, well-being science, and respectful learning environments too. So I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. All right, welcome to the seventh episode of the Wagtails podcast. I'm excited to introduce the guest that I have in here today, someone I've learned a lot from because we crossed paths in our master's work, uh, 2019, Mm -hmm. I think it would have been when we last saw each other. Mm. Um, I've got Kit in the room. Welcome, Kit. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So, Kit, could you just tell us a little bit about who Kit is currently? Currently, yeah. Um, So, currently I'm... I'm a physiotherapist. Um, like Megan said, I met her during our master's, uh, well-being master's in just before COVID. Hooray. Yeah, lucky um, we got it in, hey. I like know. I looked at the poor people doing it after us and I was like, the in-person connection was like the highlight of the whole thing. I don't know how they did Like I know how they did it, but I, for us, it was, I remember mm. us always coming back in like from a couple of months away and the... Uh, the excitement and kind of um, energy in the room was palpable. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. It? yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I wonder if it changed the whole, the whole learning environment really. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I did that. And then um, I found myself. Um, so I was working, I started my own business in the middle of that masters. Um, yeah. I, I remember. Yeah. I really wanted to create a, an approach to healthcare that kind of really allowed for the humanity of every person and really kind of um, came back to the really core belief of dignifying people. Um, and so I started to create this business that was really heavily informed by um, the stuff we were learning. Um, and which is now I understand how I work as well is that really experiential. So whatever I'm learning or understanding or, or figuring out, I kind of need to actually implement it um, Mm. and play with it a little bit and kind of and see how it works Um, and so I started doing um, seeing people like you know physio um, and then just started working more with people sort of persistent pain but also people who were kind of um, what I kind of think is kind of like marginalized I mean lots of people are marginalized in our healthcare systems but I started to see people who were afraid to go and see other health professionals or wary or it's like they knew they needed something else but they weren't sure what it was yet so it's this real kind of sense of a felt sense of something unformed I think Um, and so what I ended up doing was I was kind of crafting this shape of of a healthcare approach that was listening and kind of sensing into the clients that were not getting what they needed from the healthcare system Mm. and then trying to kind of build a business around it but build an approach around it so I think for about five years during the masters and then COVID, I squirreled. I call it squirreling away, but I <clears throat> I squirreled away in my little room, and really felt like I wasn't a physio anymore in some mm. vein. Like I just f- did not feel connected to my profession, um, and probably learnt so much by just hanging out with my clients and learning from them, um, and really listening into what they were not being provided and and then listening when I did provide it and what sort of a difference it made. Um, So that kind of continued to evolve and then I reached a point where um, in my own journey I suppose I got kind of stuck in a talk therapy sort of model and was like there's more here, there's more to me and there's more to pain in a way. And so I actually found myself... um, uh, engaging in a somatic psychotherapy for myself um, and actually for me and my partner, which is beautiful, beautiful work, couples therapy in this sort of model. And then as you do when you experience something, 
again, mm. doing it how I learn, I was like, oh my God, this stuff could be so, is so, so beautiful for um, the persistent pain and the pain world because um, this somatic psychotherapy, it drops out of kind of the, um, the story, mm-hmm. which we know is so, can be so helpful for talk therapy. And I'm, you know, I'm, not, I'm not dismissing that at all, but I could really sense that, that we reached a ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so this particular method, it's called Hakomi, um, it looks, it kind of drops into the storyteller and it's looking at how we organize, it's studying how we organize ourselves around experiences. So if we really kind of get a sense of it, we're dropping into um, really old habits you know, they talk about how some of our blueprints are formed before we're verbal. Yep. You know, so um, <clears throat> from from a from a pain world, I could really see how this could work well with. Um, we now know that pain is really informed by our deep pain beliefs. Interesting. And our pain beliefs, we learn pain. So we learn pain through how we're parented, how our parents respond to pain. You know, how our parents regulate or do not regulate us or you know how they attune to us Mm. Um, so we also know that um pain's impacted by like um how we've experienced it in the past and we project it forward so this This is super interesting (laughs) (laughs) i need to slow down but (laughs) but i could see where this somatic psychotherapy through my own sort of experience was dropping so much more into um core behaviors that are not from a cognitive, I know them already. Like, you know, they're mm-hmm. really potentially nonverbal and held in the body in, yeah. a, in an embodied way. Yeah. So I could really see how this could be such a beautiful way to work with people um, because persistent pain, like pain's not, get, not getting any better at it. Mm-hmm. If, if anything, it feels like we're getting worse. You know, it's prevalence, the, the cost of on society and just the, the pain of pain. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I am now. I've still I'm <clears throat> still got a little bit more study to go. But I think the thing that you might be interested in from this space of when we how we learn from people and how we learn is the way that I'm being exposed to and taught mm-hmm. the Hakomi method, I think is phenomenal teaching. So it's a completely different teaching environment. What's it look like? Um <clears throat> So a real intention from the very beginning around how we cultivate felt sense of safety. Mm. So all of what we're learning about, we're getting embedded, which is what happened in our masters, but I felt like that was on more of a pure cognitive level. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So this is an embodied, um, intentional learning environment that's being set up. Yeah. Every so is that more like road. tapping into the physiological feelings, like yeah, yeah, before yeah. you begin? Yeah. 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 And, and from a... From a, you know, yes, we do still do some didactic where we've got like them with a slideshow, but it's not much. We've got lots of experiential mm-hmm. and then we've got lots of reflection mm. and then deeper work again on yourselves through experience and then reflection on that. Yeah, And then cool. coming back into theme. So yep. there's this beautiful cyclical, not cyclical, circular layered approach to how we're learning, which I just think is so cool. And so... Even from a learning perspective in a group, I'm kind of, you know, we use the word healing, but like having missed, I'm having missing experiences in a group way of learning that's around fear and shame mm. that was in school, mm. that was in physio, that would have still been in the masters a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, because yeah. people bring their staff. So we had a beautiful reflection <clears throat> from one of the Clint Sykes in the room because it's a mixed um, space as well. You don't have to be a clean psych. Like we've got people who are, um, you have to have a, have to have done some work on self sort of um, exploration and things um, and have an interest in, you know, where you're going to take it, but you don't necessarily have to have a. Oh, that's interesting. Psych. Yeah, it's really yep. fascinating. Yeah. But we had a beautiful reflection on the last um, week we just had, and we've been doing this for two years together, and she was saying this is the first environment she's been in, a learning environment where she can actually now really truly feel in and sense that there's no fear and shame mm. and that the way that we're learning is not in competition with each other mm-hmm. and that the way and the pace and how we're learning is actually we're in full service of each other's growth. That's awesome. Yeah. And, yep. and it just really struck me because I'm like, I think we all want that, but we don't mm. know how to 
how yeah. to cultivate it, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think if we come back to what you're really interested in around learning environments mm-hmm. and not you know, re-traumatize, re-traumatizing people but then also supporting, um, you know, nervous systems and, and well, people with nervous systems obviously but people in a way where we can um, hold the complexity and the ambiguity mm. and also have containment. Yeah. You know, I think there's so much learning that's going on purely by being exposed to this learning environment that I think is really fascinating. Wow. There's so much there. <laughs> it's really funny because um, just for everyone listening at home as well, when I first reached out to Kit to come and record a, a conversation, like we hadn't spoken for a little while. And in my head, I was like, Kit's doing amazing work on pain and story in the physiotherapy space. And I always learned so much chatting mm. to her. And I had no idea she'd moved into the somatic psychotherapy space. Um, and once I heard that, I was like, oh, this is even better. Like, there's so much here. Because um, there's so much to what you just said as well. Because I'm obviously really curious about, yeah, learning environments, but also people have experienced trauma in learning environments as well and what that yeah. means for them and how to create safety and regulating spaces for them as well. Mm. And it sounds like like this design is perfect for for adults. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really good. And I think I think it's also not perfect, which is beautiful. Well, yeah, perfect's probably not the right word. <laughs> There's no such thing as a perfect learning environment. No. Because we've got complex human beings in the space. <laughs> but I think what I'm – and, like, there's moments where, you know, I think what I love as well is the two people who facilitate it. We've got three, but, you know, one jumps in, one jumps out, depending on their schedule. But we still can notice when they fail in a way mm-hmm. at just like, we're like, oh, mate, you know, at lunch you might go, do you think there should have been a repair there? Like, mm. and it's not that they're not doing it. It's just, it just shows it's that. It's evolving, right? Yeah, and it yep. shows that we all have these deep beliefs and these deep frames in the world that we just assume the other person has the same as mm. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I think yeah. even just randomly when we were learning one day and we just noticed again for just, reaffirming the fact but you know like I think I went up to get a cup of coffee um in the break and like you know I got the wrong biscuit or something and you know me I'm like oh quick you know do the change make it right or something you know <laughs> yeah and the person who I was talking to might have gone like oh she's not interested at me mm, she's yeah, you know sure. turning away and you know so my body language is I'm going to move this way because I my deep belief is like don't get the wrong biscuit <laughs> you know <laughs> or like yeah yeah quick you know, make it better or, you know, something deep down there. But um, yeah. just we keep just keep reminding ourselves around every interaction. Yeah. You've got these two people who, if you really sink down into their deep core beliefs that mm. won't be in their consciousness or they won't yeah. be sitting there going, oh, this is what's going on for me. Yeah. So what this space is, is it's a beautiful slowing down and a noticing and a space where we do can name things or we can notice things or we can be brave and talk about them or Mm. even have facilitated repairs and so I think it's just so much to learn I don't think it's perfect as in gold standard but I think I think it's pretty damn good yeah yeah could Um, you see like a um see this anything from like the learning space that could actually be replicated for younger people as well like other elements yeah 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 for sure yeah totally yeah because really if we of understand what we're doing in the Hakomi course is we're all dealing with our own stuff which is our own younger little parts yeah exactly so really it's a space that is designed for um yeah uh, obviously that but you could see how the the felt sense safety and the trust in the group is allowing so much more to come forward that again if we come back to neuroscience we know that those deep hurt parts won't come forward unless they actually feel safe to do so and that generally means a really loving, non-judgmental, mm. you know, consistent environment. Yeah. Which if we think about lots of the ones we know about, they're not that. No. And yeah. they are very competitive spaces. And, yeah, often they are re-traumatising. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious because you're talking about, like, dropping sort of out of story. Yeah. So story was always a big part of your work. Mm. Um, and what I found really interesting about all of that was, like, obviously we've all accessed healthcare, like, in some form or another. Mm. Um, and something that's never sat right for me is that disconnect between, like, body and mind. And, like, you know, yeah. we've separated the two for so long. You go to a doctor or you go to a, a health professional for something physical. Yeah. And then you go to a psychologist or psychiatrist for something, you know, in the mind. Mm. Um, and you were really bringing the two together. And I was like, oh, like, this is so obvious. This is what we should be doing Mm. Um, and a lot of the trauma work a lot of the trauma um, researchers the big ones have always been looking into this like Mm. they've they've brought it to life a lot more in the space of Mm -hmm. well trauma we think it happens in the mind 
but it's in the body. It's mm. embodied. Yeah. Um, so I'm sort of curious because like, obviously there's the story element, mm-hmm. but now you're really looking at the connection between mind and body really in this work, right? In just yeah. in a different way. And now you're looking at more the embodied sense of it, but I'm assuming then story comes out. Does yeah. story sort of emerge from the embodied work? Yeah, so I think I was thinking about this in the car on the way over. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think story is beautiful. I think... I think it's, you know, it, it's how we connect. It's how we learn. Mm. It's how we make sense. Um, narrative is just beautiful as a, as a pace or a, um, an emergence or an organicity to it. Like I think stories are, I still love stories. Don't get, don't get you wrong about that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think they're beautiful um, from that place of being able to connect in to, like if you think about even like hearing about a story or chatting off air about you listening to a story that really, mm. you know, got your heart going. And I think even if even in this space of going, oh, that's an embodied response. Mm. Like even just taking that and going, oh, what do you notice in your heart, Mika? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, we could take a story and understand how it allows us to connect back in yep. to, yes, our bodies, but also like what else is what what is um you know how are we making sense of the story even for ourselves yeah so I love stories for the way they foster intimacy connection um people can really I feel like they've got this sense of they're they're close but they've also got a little bit of distance if it's a story about someone else you know there's maybe like a bit more space for Mm self-reflection because it's not like someone's looking directly at you yeah um, <clears throat> so I think stories are phenomenal mm-hmm. and as we know, they have a long lineage of, um, of, of how worldviews are passed on mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. meaning and how we do things and, um, stories don't also have to be just about words, you know? So I think, I think sometimes we forget that so much was known before we, this generation came around and tried to <laughs> rename and, and, you know, say we did this, but I think. I love stories for so many reasons and I think I think from a pain care point of view I think the stories are so important mm. for each individual understanding that they have an experience. Yeah. Right? Because again pain is an experience we now know. It's we used to all think it was like sensation. We now understand it's an experience mm-hmm. and that everyone has a unique one. Yeah, that's what I found fascinating about what you're saying before as well is that mm. like pain our experience of pain is actually like created by us essentially we're not created but learned Learned. like learned yeah Yeah. so that's fascinating in itself because this might sound weird and I don't know you can take this wherever you want but I've had quite a few people tell me I have a high pain threshold Mm. so I've had a physiotherapist tell me that I've had people at boxing tell me that (laughs) like you Mm. know I've had yeah I've had a bunch of people tell me I have a high pain threshold Mm. um and that my physio actually said it was a dangerous thing because Mm. like I boxed through a shoulder injury but (laughs) um yeah, so he was like kind of, and then like, yeah, when he'd be like manipulating it or whatever, he'd be like mm. getting me to rate the pain and he's like, there's no way it can be that low. Um, mm, okay. Um, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> different angle than you would take. <laughs> well, I think, again, it, it's it's interesting because if we kind of, if we step out, of, if we kind of zoom out a bit, it's, it's we're putting pain to a numbers hard. Yeah. Yeah, oh, for sure. It. Yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. Because in my we, head, I'm like, surely like 10 is like, I'm going to die. Like it's death. Like in my head, that's what I was giving 10, but he didn't give me like what 10 should be, you know? Well, this is the thing, right? So if we, if it's an experience and we know that it's, it's influenced by so many different factors. So it's, so if you just then it's influenced by him, his experience of pain. Yeah. Because you guys are actually your whole physiology, your biology is talking to each other. Yeah. It's it's influenced by all the other pain experiences you've had, how your parents responded to you you know, like what your expectation of this injury is, mm. it's impacted by your want to get back to boxing or how important boxing is to you and not wanting to, you know, not box. Mm. You know, it's going to be impacted by society's expectations. Yeah. Maybe how people see you. You know, like there's so, yeah, there's yeah. so yeah, much true. that's wrapped up in, oh, that's 10 out of 10. Like, you know, like <laughs> yeah, kind of, yeah. But it doesn't mean yeah. we don't use them, but we've just got to be careful and understand that this is not a simple thing we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah. And we don't want to scare people away with like, this is, oh my God, this is so complex. We don't have any idea. Mm. But I think understanding that pain, yeah, is, is an experience. And so I can never say to you, you're not having that experience, Megan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I believe everything that will happen to you and that's what I think is one of the first things we need kind of practitioners to to start to think about is that because it's an experience you can't actually deny someone that or you can't say this is wrong or right or it should be like this or it shouldn't Mm -hmm. 
because it's theirs. Yeah. And I think that's one of the first steps that maybe on that sort of unconscious level, patients are maybe perhaps not being believed. Mm, mm -hmm. And then that can get quite confusing when we're trying to get people to, um, you know, start to trust their bodies again in a way. Yeah. Is that they're looking for external um, information about how they're supposed to feel. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So without stepping on people's <laughs> Oh, no, totally fine. I highly doubt that um, past physiotherapist is listening. <laughs> Maybe they are. Hello. They could be. Feel free to come and have I'm not going to name you, but hey. No. But I think it's really interesting, you know, because I used to be a physio who would have those, you know, we got taught a pain scale and I'd like have to, you know, you'd use it and, you know, I'd notice how yucky it felt. Yeah, because I never knew how to answer. Like, any session, I'd always be like, oh, I don't know. And then because he'd said it should be higher than that, I'm like, all right, so 10's not death then. So I've got to drop my 10 to be on the scale. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? I was overthinking it well, now, so and then, much. And then you're not in your pain experience, yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah. You're up in your head going... Yeah, exactly. Being like, oh, okay, so what confusion, number... Confusion. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, not, not um, self-doubt. yeah. Yeah. Like if you think about what's actually happening in that experience for you and what we're not embodied anymore, mm, mm-hmm. you know, so we're actually one step away from your, you know, your experience again. Yeah. And it's, I just was like, oh, maybe the pain's meant to be also a good thing because like maybe he's manipulating something and it should hurt and it's going to feel better later. Like, you know, so I was like, there was just so much going on. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I think, I think, um, oh my God, we could talk for hours on the <laughs> patriarchal healthcare system. <laughs> But um, where were we going before? Oh, stories, I think, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I think, but I think it's, I think that first step of, of people knowing that they have one and it's theirs is so mm, important. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that first step is that I, it's not like I've abandoned that step. Yeah. It's just that I'm now going kind of deeper into it and going, who's the storyteller in this story? Mm. And how are we cultivating that story yeah and perhaps that story might not serve anymore Mm. you know and and or how is it supporting you know so really getting a sense of then how are we organizing around this belief um, or this behavior which you know I'm trying to think of an example I could give that would be a nice one for listeners which uh, I never can try and think of one but you know like we have classic ones I suppose that I had one guy the other day who um, you know I sat in, he goes, I sat in the wrong position for too long and now this has happened and, you know, went on his, told me about his stuff and I just sort of listened and then was like, hey, you know, where did that narrative come from around sitting in a bad position? I'm just, I'm really curious. And, you know, he had a, you know, my neighbour's a physio and I was like, oh, I'm just fascinated. Like, would it be okay if I just, you know, shared with you some, some kind of updated info we have? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, so there's actually no bad posture. You know, the the body loves variety, but there's actually no posture that is like, that's bad. And if we think about it in, this is probably where our profession has, you know, has run away, is this creation of sort of fear and shame around incorrect postures that kind of does that thing that you just did then before, where it takes us out of our our self-trust and goes, shit, I'm supposed to be sitting this particular way or not this particular Mm. way. And and then we're no longer present with the young person in front of us that we're trying to, you know, hang out with or whatever we're trying to do. So, you know, like even just that as a simple one is there's real pervasive narratives around you shouldn't sleep that way, you shouldn't sit this way. And Mm. it's sort of like there is no bad posture. Like your body's inherently resilient and reliable it likes to move differently. So sometimes it might go, hey, can we change stuff up? Yeah. But that that layer of fear and shame is kind of, I suppose, more what I what I sort of work with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can, so fascinating. And if you think about schooling, yeah. let me come back to compliant children who sit a certain way, you can see how these sorts of narratives become really embedded and, yeah. and embedded by teachers, parents, physios, gym people. Mm. So they're really sticky, mm. you know, and that can inform a whole pain experience Yeah, that might be persisting or might be, you know, so it's, that's just one example, I suppose, that came to mind around something that's fairly common. Mm. But if you go out there onto the internet, internet, Google world, you'll see just how much there's, you know, um, just those, still those fear, doubt kind of based, um, I suppose, marketing, you'd call it, or around doing things the wrong way or in the wrong posture. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, and I'm sure we've all, like we all think about it <laughs> far too much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially in the lockdown period too. I know there was a lot of work going on even just in our workspace around does everyone have what they need to actually physically sit in the right way to get mm. the work done at home. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, yeah. 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 I imagine, I'm just curious if you had a, if we'd had this discussion then, what might have emerged? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious as well, because before we started recording, like you mes- um, mentioned that you went to Bessel van der Kolk recently as well uh, when he was in yeah. Australia. Yep. Um, and huge fan of his work, obviously. It's informed a lot of my work hmm. as well. So just wondering if there's any gems from that, especially now that you're entering like the work that you're entering now. Um, I think what m- my friend and I who went... It- Actually, what was really fascinating is Bessel asked the crowd at the start, like, where, what backgrounds they came from. Yeah. He didn't ask if there were any, like, body workers in the room. Oh, really? So it was so fascinating. So we were both sitting there going, um, are you going to ask about, like, physios or podiatrists or osteos? So he just, I think wow, the assumption that's so interesting. That he thought it was just a whole bunch of, like, psychs who were wanting to learn about the body. The body. Yeah. And we were coming. So it was so funny. Because um, that's what I was curious about. Even when I, just before when I was like saying, you know, story is obviously still really important. The connection mm. between body and mind mm. and the work you're doing. It's like the body's emerging the story now. Mm. Whereas the work he's kind of insinuating is, oh, you're getting story and you want to know where in the body it is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's fascinating. So that was one thing that we kind of had a bit of a giggle about. And we we're like, should we put our hand up and tell Bessel? That- <laughs> you should. <laughs> you absolutely should. Um, I think from a, from a content point of view, we both really enjoyed the the information on the, the actual brain and what yeah. happens when trauma is there. So I think that yep. was really fascinating for us to be able to connect into things that we'd kind of thought we had an okay handle on, but then to kind of really see the, the content around it. Um, and then, you know, classic us, though, is that we were observing sort of the learning environment and yeah. it was in a big auditorium. You couldn't really move much. It was really dark. Lots of sitting and listening. So, like, again, we were like, is this perpetuating the same stuff? You sound like a teacher. Like, we are the worst <laughs> students by far. And I do that anytime I'm at a conference, anytime I go to a professional development situation, anytime I enter a learning space, yep. I'm my critical brain's on straight away. And I'm like, is this really the best way to learn? <laughs> it's funny. And then the other interesting little tidbit that we both noticed, we were sitting more towards the back, but um, he brought on his now, his wife, who now does a lot of the, the somatic sort of, sort of stuff, I yeah, suppose cool. we'll call it. Yeah. And so she did quite a bit of she did some entry kind of um, mindfulness based stuff and and <clears throat> but most of it was around his content and she was there and what we found fascinating was just watching kind of just tracking the audience in that a lot of them when we did the somatic stuff they all started fiddling with their phones and having a chat and. <laughs> Um, so we just thought it was interesting. The so they just still want to understand it on a cognitive level, but yeah. maybe not the experiential. So we're curious around like, you know, what are the barriers there? Like, yeah. is there like a fear or a shame mm. or, or like a, you know, inherently not valuing this? Yeah. I'm looking at my body and like, do, do we just still, not just, but, you know, is knowledge as in cognitive knowledge still just so valued as a form of um of knowing mm. which is just it's like quite even learning about the body it's just like i'll just store that thought exactly. in here and maybe later in my own privacy maybe yeah so i think yeah. there's this real you know there's a real awareness um that to learn about this stuff we need to take a different approach yeah we can't just keep going let's just learn about it cognitively and hope that it filters through because I think then we're just still disconnecting from embodied yep. knowledge yeah for sure but they tried they, they they tried to you know create the space for it to connect I think we were just interested in how the, the audience responded yeah some people were really engaged down the front yeah I think that was good but it was such a big auditorium again you know numbers yeah yeah connection to speaker and not much group you know you turned to your partner and did stuff but um, people around us were not doing not doing what they were told yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting reflection in itself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think and that and like I'm knee I'm knee deep in doing Hakomi, so I think it was just such a vastly different um environment to learn. Yeah, in. yeah. Um, and just even noticing my um you know, how I was trying to take it in in a way that um would make sense to me and how I really after about an hour I needed to have a break of the the stuff he was just, yeah, you know. So, 
again, it, it brings in, I think, compassion for myself as a learner back in school and back in uni where they, there was lots and it was fast and it was mm. you just got to learn it and you know it and I didn't. And I think if I'm really honest with myself, I probably spent most of my physio degree dissociating mm-hmm. as a way to cope with the, the way the content was being um, <clears throat> taught but also the the dehumanizing kind of lens that it came from yeah and that's sort of something more I think being exposed to the Hakomi um, uh, environment has made me aware of like how did I actually cope through my learning in physio yeah um, and actually that was probably quite a survival probably smart you know yeah, in yeah. a way that that yeah, I did definitely. that yeah, yeah so I didn't want to participate in the way that it was being taught but yeah. I went through a process and then it allowed you to become the health practitioner that's a little bit aware you know like more aware yeah yeah well and that still took me a good you know however many years to yeah still work in the old system knowing inherently inside that it didn't feel comfortable Mm. um and I suppose that's what I you know when saying yes I'll come onto a podcast with you you know (laughs) I've got to remind myself around the meaning and the purpose of just being able to speak to these experiences because if I'd heard I didn't know that you could do it a different way back then. Yeah, for sure. I knew that it wouldn't feel right and I knew that it didn't feel supportive for clients, but I didn't know how else to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so going to do the masters with you was that was a big step for me outside of the physio world, like actually looking for other avenues of knowledge and and community and um, and exploring something different. Yeah, but even it's funny while we're just talking about learning environments and how you sort of disassociated. Mm. Um, to cope through the physio mm. I know that when we were doing the masters like it was probably like one of the lowest periods of time for my own well-being uh, right. um, I just found like like critiquing well-being so deeply mm. for such a long period of time was actually like taking away from my my well-being at the time yeah yeah so I feel like um like honing in on it learning so much about it mm. kind of feeling like you're getting all these tools and you know they should be working so mm. you should be applying them they should be working it was just like I was I think I was overanalyzing that whole period of time uh-huh. um, and then obviously adding the workload of you know I was in a leadership role at the time and yeah. having the study load as well I was like I am like really not peaking right now yeah <laughs> and it, like there's sort of a sense of irony to that as well there wasn't necessarily a lot of space at times to be like hey actually there's there's room to talk about struggle in this in this masters as well mm. and that was something I found a little bit jarring at times oh, I know when we came away and like we you know we all had great connections and mm. would talk after class yeah, but <laughs> um, and we held space really well for each other in those spaces mm. but I just found in the learning it was sort of very much a here's how you thrive if you're not thriving you know well um yeah just learn about thriving. Of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and if you're not, like, yeah. does that mean that you're doing something wrong? Yeah. Rather like, than the yeah. environment being potential. Yeah. And I know po- the post psych world's like, you know, coming a long way. It's constantly evolving. And we were learning at a time when they already were acknowledging second waves of research and things like that too. Yeah. So the space was there, but it was just, I found in that master's, it was a very interesting time to yeah. just have it like in your face all the time. Like here's, th- here's how you thrive, here's well-being. Yeah. Um, but is yeah. Isn't it so fascinating about like what we take out of each experience? Like for me, that learning experience was not particularly about like well-being and thriving as a concept. Yeah. It was really about um, creating, um, allowing myself to learn a different way. It was like this first step, you know, mm. I'm stepping mm-hmm. further towards it with Hakomi, but a real sense of like autonomy, um, having the connections with group, yep. um, just being able to choose to do you know, what I wanted, like, my assignments on and things like yeah. that. Like, for yep. me, so there was this, so for me, I tapped into autonomy, curiosity, creativity. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had all the workload and stuff. But for me, that whole two years was more around those things for me. Yeah, yeah. Because of where I'd come from in the physio world and the school yep. world. And I'd made this choice and I was sort of, like, having just a fun time being me for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... It's, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, that can shape your whole experience oh, for of, sure. of something. Yeah. I think mine yeah. was also coming from a place, though, where I was almost feeling oppositional. <laughs> yeah. And I was pushing back a little bit because a lot of the research and a lot of the people in the room were, um, you know, from fairly privileged situations. And yeah. I was like, well, where do my students fit into here? Yeah, definitely. And where does someone who's struggling fit into here? Mm. And I think it was, yeah, mine was coming from a bit of like an oppositional, like mm. I kind of want to push against all of you and... And crack the system open a little bit wider for, yeah. for some more things to fit here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How'd that go? 
Um, I think it's still going. <laughs> yeah, here we are. <laughs> it's so interesting now because I actually um, I get to teach positive psychology at Monash, so wow. I teach the subject for the psychology um, wow. students. Yeah, so it's a second semester subject. I'm about to start again. So what? How do you um, bring in struggle? How are you bringing in? Well, the cool the... thing is they're looking at it from a clinical lens, so oh. they have that lens. Um, so they want to bring it to people who are, you know, coming to them for a, for clinical service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's like right at the core of like, I'm like this, you know, this fits really well. So can I ask, what do you reckon? What was the th- what was one of the things that you learnt in that masters that did um, nourish you or or but added to your um, experience amongst all of that? That like you're saying like it was a pretty tricky, difficult, struggly one. Yeah. What do you reckon kind of resonate or you took away or? It's interesting because I feel like I still like play in the space so much. So it's still very much, I'm getting booked a lot. Like a lot of people seem to want the positive psychology lens on uh-huh. on trauma or on a trauma affected space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually really love looking at the duality of that mm-hmm. and looking at how, uh, you know, there's mental health support and that's really, really needed. So the Corey Keys kind of work, I don't mm-hmm. know if you really remember that, but yeah, yeah looking Corey. at the fact, you know, we can provide clinical supports on one one mm. axis, but then we can learn skills of well-being on another. Mm. And it doesn't matter where we're kind of sitting, like we all deserve to learn about our well-being and, and have access to the knowledge and the resources mm-hmm. to influence that for ourselves mm-hmm. over time. So that's kind of the lens I always bring in a little bit is let's allow people to have the language of well-being. Yeah. Um, and then the skills and resources follow yeah, and like okay. collectively we can move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's I love cool. that kind of angle of it. Nice. Well, that's cool yeah. that you're doing some teaching. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of came out of the blue last year and then, yeah, nice. back again this year. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm still playing in the space of it, which is I find interesting. Yeah. 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 But I love it from the psych lens. Like I actually really like working with these students who mm-hmm. really, because they come in skeptical and I love that. <laughs> I'm like, who is jarred by the language right now of positive psychology? I'm yeah. like, because I am too. So let's own that and let's move forward. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm trying to think, I'm just sitting here thinking, how does it come into work with me right now? Because I'm, you know, I don't, I don't love the term. Um, and you know, as we're aware, like I'm so much more interested in second and third wave. If we, yeah. ha- if we had to go back into that sort of framework. Yeah. Um, but I think, um, I think the slowing down, like I think mindful, mm. you know, if you think about savoring, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I wish we could have learned about them in a different way in a way, like not just content based, but if we think about, um, um, actual, like a relational embodied approach, we're actually noticing, we're savoring, we're slowing down, we're paying attention mm-hmm. in a different way. Yep. And I think that's what's really come into my work is 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 the slowness. And if we're actually trying to um, help people in a way where it's not just about the next fix, because we've got to be careful with all of this stuff that we learn, is that we're not just going, oh, now we have better knowledge to fix you now. Yeah, yeah, so I've got to apply the new science right now. Yeah. yeah. And then we'll wait for the next one to see how wrong this one was. Yeah, I think it's yeah. really, really tricky. And yeah. I think we've just got to be so careful around how we how we apply it and how we use it and, and how we kind of bring it into the context. So yeah. I think I think for me, um, you know, I'm thinking probably savouring is probably one of the biggest things that I use in every way shape or form but not from a place of like now we're going to do some savoring yeah yeah yeah, you know? yeah um so i think um you know the mindfulness that her um is grounded in mm. and that real sense of i'm going to slow the other person down even if they come mm. in really dysregulated or my job is to kind of stay with my groundedness wow you know, yeah, yeah that's stay cool. nice with me but like everything that we do we might just be slowly slowing them down yeah so we can notice more things yeah that's cool because again i think we can get into that habit of speeding back up again with all of the things that we know that we need to do you know so mm. i think then we can kind of just still become part of that the rat race or the the cycle that is missing things yeah yeah um but yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily um, pause psych people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. No, it's really interesting because I feel like I haven't really, I don't use the language a lot. I don't no. think about it a lot. Yeah. Um, it was only being approached to teach this subject that I was like, oh, that's right. Like, you know, it still yeah. exists as a separate thing to other things. And yeah, because even that I was like, shouldn't it just be like threaded through a psychology degree now? It shouldn't really yeah. still learn as a subject. So. Um, yeah, just like really curious about that. And then yeah, every now and again, people will reach out and be like, hey, can you like do a workshop on pause? psych and 
I'm always like, oh, people still want it to stand alone. Yeah. Yeah, which I find really interesting. But um, it sounds like what you're talking about too, though, there's a lot of self-compassion um, in the work that you're doing too, I feel. Of course. See, I hadn't even remembered about that construct. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, inherently. Like, yeah. It's inherently like that's, that's, the, that's the ground, really. That's the grounding, yeah. you know, is anything that is really as mindful, reflective, brings the qualities of curiosity. And, um, you know, in Hakomi, we, we, one of the foundations that we learn is how to be in loving presence mm. as a felt sense experience. Mm-hmm. And actually, like, that is the ground of compassion, really. Yeah. But we have to be able to, you know, cultivate it for ourselves and for the other person. So it's fascinating work and we're, you do it, we do the deep work. But, yeah, I suppose not necessarily like self-compassion Kristen Neff style. Yeah, yeah, but, no, it's very, yeah, yeah, but, that's pretty yeah, prescribed. But, but yeah. yeah, a deep sense of, because um, when we do bring the curiosity and we, and we you know, park the judgment, mm. essentially what we're doing is, is bringing compassion and softness or gentleness or another way of viewing something, which inherently, if we're looking from a different view, we bring um, a little bit more hesitation or, or just, um, you know, we're not smashing through something. Mm. We're kind of we're slowing down there's like a grace that kind of comes with the spaces and the silences and things like that so mm. I think yeah I think definitely it's a and and self-compassion for the practitioner I think this is all the other work that I'm doing um in this space is is really advocating for the experience of the practitioner because well, I was about to ask you because mm. a lot of your work's holding space for others like it always mm. has been and now mm. it's like moving into a like what could probably at times be pretty intense or just like requiring a lot of you. Yeah. Well, I think what we now, all the stuff that I've been talking about and the, you know, the now we have neuroscience that shows us that how a practitioner and a patient or a teacher and a student, you know, meet, that um, their physiologies are interacting and that we inherently, um, you know, influence that person who's coming to see us. And also because they see us as being in an expert position, which means that they'll bring all of their experiences with authority into the room. So when we kind of start to look at it like that, there's so much responsibility for the practitioner to hold this client well, but at the same time, like who's holding the practitioner and where are the skills and resources and support Mm -hmm. for us to A, learn that this is what we're actually doing we don't do that. Physio, these degrees don't focus on our experiences, mm. don't hold space for mm-hmm. suffering, struggle, Yeah, you know, um, exploring our own fear and shame. So I think, you know, in, in, uh, in conjunction with doing this for the clients, I think it's, you know, my other big passion is around how we actually start to support um in a compassionate way because we will be stuffing up. We have been for, for a while now without knowing this information. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I work practitioners who aren't even aware that they have an experience when they're in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like, what do you mean I have something going on for me? It's like, well, there is something's going on. You're having an experience just like they are. You're yep. having one too, and that's actually impacting them, and theirs is impacting you. So Which is true for any practitioner, anything. anyone working with a human being, yeah. Right. So. Yep. <clears throat> like this is now where the science is kind of taking us. Mm. So we, we need to start um, not just exploring it, but actually building resources and supports and, and ways of being able to help practitioners transform their practice. Um, and I think the really cool possibility about all of this is that, um, and this comes more from the Hakomi approach itself, is that it's inherently nourishing work to work in the way that we're learning. So you can see it as a... Um, I don't want to use the word burnout, but we will. But, you know, like a a buffer to mm. that. It's a sustainable model, the way we work, mm-hmm. um, which I think at the moment it's not. So I think there's potential here to help support transform practitioners and in doing so actually create sustainable working yeah. models and relationships. And Yeah. You're um, speaking my language because I'm all about <laughs> – like we've done a lot for um, – like people that are working in trauma-informed spaces. So they're working with trauma-affected clients or students and they focus so heavily on the students and the clients and they make everything trauma-informed for them. And now the work that I'm trying to do is really look at how we can make it trauma-informed for the staffing model. And people just forget that it's like 
you have to practice. Like you have to support yourself when you're exposing yourself to trauma. Mm. It's the same kind of thing you're talking about here as well. It's like mm. a human being providing a service or providing practice is mm. also having an experience yeah. and they need strategies and tools to buffer against the, the challenge of that. Well, and there's the strategies and the tools, which I think is where we, you know, we always go to and yes, we want it, but there's also the being with. Yeah. And I think that's that this intersubjective space that I'm so curious about um, and knowing that, you know, if we're here to be with someone else, how, how am I showing up? Yeah, and where's the being with? Because mm. I think if we only ever go, oh, here, practitioner, here's some strategies and tools, which is what's starting to happen in physio world. Like, here, learn about mindfulness or mm. self-care, which, again, we won't go too much into the yeah. wellness <laughs> capitalist yeah, yeah. regime. But, yeah. but I think it, it has the potential to perpetuate the individualistic, yeah. this is your problem now, you need to be trauma-informed, so go look after yourself. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Actually, we need to slow down together or we need to be together yeah it's practice like it's actually about practices that are embedded yeah 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 and not just seeing it as a again even like a quick fix or yeah or you have to do this once you get home you know go do a b and c you know just to wash off the day or wipe off the day so you can come back and do it again tomorrow it's like it's not really how this stuff works no yeah no so i think you know lots of work to do but i think Mm. again this my exploration sort of deeper into the embodied um lens of it all it it feels like we need to go there yeah um and it kind of makes sense when you think about it if i'm you know using my body in a therapeutic influential way it makes sense to go and Mm. explore my own and get to know it and see what wisdom it holds yeah that's so cool um so yeah that's that's my story well perfect timing (laughs) because we are really coming close to the end of the time um and i did explain to you at the start that i do have five questions i ask each guest and Mm -hmm. kit really wanted to know what the questions were (laughs) before we began but i was like no just go with your gut answer don't overthink too much but the space do whatever you need (laughs) okay um so the first question is what did you want to be when you were a kid Oh, I wanted to be a kid. You just wanted to have fun? I wanted to play. Yeah. I wanted to be ridiculous and silly. Yeah. And not have to think and make decisions. Perfect. wanted to (laughs) be. And that's what I try and still do a lot. Yeah, I was going to say, and I know, like, I've noticed even, (laughs) you know, observed in your parenting that there's a lot of play and a lot of child Still, well, that's, still there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think play is. I think play and playfulness are underrated. I mean, we mm. know play is a, again a construct. Yeah. But I think playfulness. Yeah. And the ability to get some movement into a system so is so cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Love that. Um, question two is: What are your two top values? If you can only choose two. <clears throat> values. Hello, values. <laughs> um. If I only choose two, probably oh, this will change tomorrow as well. But let's go with honesty and playfulness. Like it, yeah, yeah. All right, this one's like a little bit obscure, so I apologise. <laughs> it's more for like you know a bit of a laugh. Um, if you were going to have a boxing fight, what would be your walkout song? So they play a song as you're like walking to the ring, to like get you amped up. Or... Oh my god. Um. I'm going to have to have some thinking time. Yeah, this is a question that's really getting people. <laughs> well, because I don't, I like, I don't really do amp up music. Oh, actually, no. What did we listen to last night at Mother's Group? Mother's Group. <gasps> Four Non Blondes. <laughs> um, what's it called? Do you know it? No, I don't know it. No, because it was wicked. We played it last night and we were like, oh my God, we forgot about this song. So I'm just going to Google it again. Um, I used to listen to it when I was <laughs> younger. Porn on Blondes. What's up? Yep. There you go. There we go. Look on Spotify. <laughs> Perfect. It's from the 90s. <laughs> That's so funny. How good is that? You got an answer. That's good. Hello to my mother's group. Hope all your headaches are okay. <laughs> uh, question four. If you could collaborate with anyone in the field, any of the fields that you play, play in, um, dead or alive, who would oh it be? Oh, my God. These are supposed to be answer from your gut. <laughs> my gut says, I don't know. Um, anyone in my f- in the field? Yeah. Any of the fields that you've kind of touched on, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Um, Which probably made it way too broad. Yeah, you've just gone. Now my mind's gone blank. 
Um, who would I want to collaborate? This is the thing. I what I what I'm gonna how I'm gonna answer this is by tangential thinking. Um, I don't go much for like. I love learning about stuff, and then I'm just so curious about the people in front of me. Yeah. So I like I really love all of the people who have taught us everything, and I think everyone's work is amazing. But there's part of me that just goes, like, who's here right now, mm. and what can I learn from them? And how can I apply maybe what we've learned into that conversation? I actually really love that because everyone's got so much value to learn from. Mm. Yeah, I really so love I'm gonna that. I'm going to go that. Yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, and the last question, which is obviously a bigger one, so feel free to take your time. <laughs> um, if you could recommend one thing that everyone could do as a step towards healing, what would it be? Um. <clears throat> Well, I think probably right now what's coming forward for me is that is that child energy, like that playfulness that, you know, just gets so quickly whipped out of us. Not whipped. Yeah. Not whipped. Sorry, listeners. I meant like... <laughs> I meant like whoosh, Conditioned out of that us. That noise. Um, <laughs> golly. Um, but, yeah, I just think that just we're so quickly, you know, I think about my own kid around... Um, you know, school for him and his, his difficulties with just conforming. And mm. and so one of our biggest things that we do is allow space for all the things that are conformed away. So, you know, and that's that generally means that whatever emerges is beautifully required because we just hold space for the whole. So I think, you know, getting in touch with that part that's there, it's always been there, but I think that silly playful part because and like trusting that not having to necessarily go let's play a game of xyz yeah just allowing it to kind of emerge um i think that just has the most beautiful impact on people around you and also yourself to be able to kind of let that be there in a way that's um you know ideally met by the people around you i love that Mm. i love that because i feel like that is so true a lot of our generation would have gone through it as well where Mm. it was like conform do what we need to do leave play behind and then it's only like later on in life that i've been like wow i really need play like i need to be more conscious of play and Mm. allow for play when i think again when we come back into adult spaces it's then like right let's formally play yeah yeah yeah. and like maybe silliness or like you know, playfulness that's more emergent, yep. not organised, is kind of perhaps seen as like non-professional well, I always or feel like disruptive. Because <laughs> even when I was saying I was like oppositional a little bit in the Masters, it was like a lot of silliness coming out in me and that same. oppositionalness same. Well. The first time that I yelled out something while Lindsay was speaking, I was like, where did that come from? Yeah. But yeah. it was like this need to be like, yeah. Can we just like have a little soft edges here or like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's so, right. so serious all the time. Yeah. Um, so I think that's um, something that I've, um, has been really beautifully coming out in the Hakomi space and is actually um, being met from this place of actually it's another part that really mm. ne- and is bringing out other people's parts. Yeah. Um, and then it's bringing out their judgment, which is really interesting to sit with. So, um, you know, I just think, finding places where or finding people who can meet you in your inherent silliness playfulness and kind of it's just I think the most humanizing thing we can do I love that pretty cheap (laughs) (laughs) the great thing is every single person who's answered has Mm. said something that is free and is like accessible yeah and I love that so yeah yeah, getting a good little list But yeah, thank nice. you so much, Kit. Um, honestly, I always loved chatting and I always loved learning from you when we were seeing each other way more regularly when we we're both mm. studying together. Yeah, um, cool. So it's so nice to have you in today and have this conversation. You are so. very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> thank you, wonderful listeners, for making it right to the end of the podcast. We appreciate you. If you like what you hear, feel free to subscribe, give us a rating. We'll be dropping a new episode roughly once per fortnight, so you can stay tuned for the next one. Thank you.